friends. Welcome back to the New Evangelicals podcast. I hope you are doing well, and I hope that you have your Bible nerd hats on because we are going deep today. On this episode, I have Dr. John Walton on the show. Now, okay, let's back up for a second. John Walton is a, I would say, a legend in uh, Old Testament studies, specifically the book of Genesis and the book of Job. I say this in the recording um, of the interview, but he's authored over 30 books, okay? So this guy knows what he's talking about. He is um, uh, articulate, and on top of all that, Tim Mackey references him all the time. So in a way, I kind of have the master who has really influenced Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, which I think is pretty stinking awesome. So I am so pumped to release this interview because we talk about is the Bible inerrant. We talk about the Genesis 1 account. We talk about how to see the Bible through um, an ancient Eastern mindset uh, instead of a modern one. And John just says things so well. I also ask him about the deconstructing movement, what his thoughts are on it, and also uh, if he has any critique for more progressive Christians, uh, maybe such as myself, or maybe if you're out there listening to it. So this is really a great episode. I am just ecstatic to have you listen to it. It's just so great. So great. Um, right before we head into this, of course, I just want to give you guys a heads up. I appreciate everyone who has given us a review and a rating on iTunes. If you could give us a rating and a review on iTunes, it would just mean the world. It takes like 30 seconds. Just hit the, the little star button. If you have time and as long as you're not driving, type up some nice words if you don't mind and hit that review. It would just be uh, immensely helpful for us being kind of in the search engine optimization that is the podcast app on iTunes, among other places like Google and Stitcher. So thank you for that in advance. All right. That being said, if you want to find out more about us and the New Evangelicals and ways you can get involved, whether it's helping out on the back end or donating, the show notes has all that information. I appreciate everyone who has helped out either financially or by giving their talents or abilities to help make all this happen. We are totally volunteer um, and it just is a lot of work, but I love it. I'm frankly, I'm obsessed. So, okay. That being said, my friends, here is the interview with John Walton. I will talk to you all next time. All right. Well, John, as you like to be called, uh, thank you so much for making time of coming on the New Evangelicals podcast. Uh, I know that you, you're taking some time away from, from your normal day-to-day work. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Always fun to talk about things. Yes, definitely. Well, I mean, and if there's anyone to talk to, I feel like you're one of, of the main people, given uh, just the breadth and scope of the work that you've done. I mean, you've written over 30 books. You've obviously been in this world of of um, just the Bible, I think it was, uh, specifically the Old Testament. And so I, I'm looking forward to this because I was telling you before we started recording that uh, on my social media, like in my circle, a lot of people are... Um, really rethinking their faith and kind of moving out of like an evangelical framework and kind of feel lost. Like they don't, you know, a lot of us feel like we've been taught it's either evangelical or nothing. There's no other, no other faith outside of this. And Mm -hmm. I think that the Bible is is, is at the heart of this. So I'm looking forward to getting some of your thoughts and perspectives um, on this discussion. So one of the first things I want to start out with is, you know, I want to talk about one of your books, the lost world of Genesis. I read this book, I think, um, early, um, Late last year, so 2020, I got an audiobook, went through it, and I was really just, I think Tim Mackey recommended it on his uh, Bible project. So I picked it up, and I'm listening to it, I'm like, wow, I've never heard this Genesis story, uh, or in, in even the book, you know, 
talked about like this. Can you, for, for those of us who haven't read the book, can you kind of give us like the premise of this and, and kind of what Genesis 1 means versus what we think it might mean? Yeah. Well, the basic premise of the lost world is that I want to bring together a close and sometimes fresh reading of the Hebrew text of, of Genesis, along with an understanding that Genesis is a product of an Israelite author speaking to an Israelite audience in an ancient context. And uh, in any culture, there are things that you say that you expect your audience to understand, and it goes without saying, but you know they'll get it. Mm. But that's tied into culture. So I want to bring together this deep reading of the text and this knowledge of the culture to try to understand texts better, like Genesis 1. Who, where, where else better to start? Uh, so the basic premise in, the, in my study, the basic results of my study, are that, first of all, the, uh, the account is not uh, focused so much on material. Hmm. Uh, we think of creation as very material-oriented because we live in a science world, a science culture. Right. And so we think that if you talk about creation, you must be talking about the origins of material things. Right. Um, what I suggest is that when you look carefully at the text and look carefully at the ancient world, you find that um, their emphasis is not material. They're aware of the material, of course, but their emphasis is on uh, I called it function in Lost World of Genesis 1. I tend more now to use the word order hmm. uh, because things function in an ordered system. And so I propose that Genesis 1 is focused on God bringing about order. Now, the cool thing about order is that the bottom line is not now it materially exists. That's okay. the material focus. The bottom line is now there's a purpose being carried out. And huh. so the idea that God is ordering the cosmos, uh, and that is a creation activity, and right. that he's doing so with a purpose in mind. So then I identify, this is the second big thing in the book, uh, the purpose is the idea that God wants to live with us. Hmm. And so it's about God's presence. Now, where would you pick that up? Well, it gets right. picked up in a place that you wouldn't spot it from our culture. Okay. But from their culture, everybody knew it. And that is when it talks about God resting. We think about resting as relaxing and disengaging. <laughs> right, taking um, a but, nap or something. Yeah, but that's not what's happening. God okay. resting means he engages and that he's not relaxing, he's ruling. In other words, God rests on a throne, not in a bed. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this idea that God has ordered the world, ordered the cosmos, hmm. and then taken up his rest in it to be with us. And that's the driving purpose, the theological purpose, which we miss altogether when we say, I don't know what this resting thing's all about. Right. And since nothing really happens on day seven, this is a six days of creation. No, 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 no. It's seven days. And if you miss day seven, you miss what it's all about. Okay. Well, my evangelical sensibilities are just, you know, alarm bells are ringing everywhere right now. So I have questions about this, obviously, you know, because I grew up in church my whole life, 32 years, have never once ever heard Genesis 1 talked about that way 
at all. It's always been, here's how scientifically the Bible speaks about, you know, the world coming into material existence. Why do you think that's been so missed in our current, like, you know, church circles in America, at least, you know, like what, what has happened there that has caused this problem? For the most part of church history, they don't have access to this material that will help you sort that out. Hmm. In other words, I'm, I'm working with the knowledge of ancient Near Eastern world and ancient Near Eastern texts. We've only had those for a little over a century. Hmm. And in that little over a century, it's taken a while to translate the texts, you know, decipher the languages, translate the texts, start to absorb them, think about how they relate to the Bible. And lots of times people who are doing that work are not really interested in the Bible and don't think very highly of the Bible. Hmm. So then it's got to get across to people who think highly about the Bible, and then they have to, okay. So there's that. But (laughs) again, it's only been in the last century or so. And therefore, this is not the kind of thing that, that any given pastor is has been trained in or been exposed to and therefore in the preaching of the church there it's not there here we are okay so uh, you know you're talking about this idea of like uh order right that, that the creation narrative is much more about this you know things aren't functioning now they are how does that play out um is that theme seen all throughout now the old testament like because I, I i asked that because one thing that that i've been realizing more and more through listening to people like yourself and others is that um it's really crazy to know that as you understand the original language better it turns out that 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 this is all hyperlinked all throughout you know the old testament including the idea of rest so can you speak more about that sure um, some of the key words i mean Hebrew probably has a word for order, uh, seder, but it occurs only once. And so you say, okay, how can that be very big? Right. But the the vocabulary that picks it up is a nuach, which people might hear the name Noah, and they should. It's the same word. Right. Okay. Okay. And that's the word for rest. Hmm. Okay. And then the word shalom, which everybody knows. Right. Um, And that's the word for, for peace. Um, not fearing because everything is ordered. And so they're connected ideas. Also, in biblical parlance, the word they talk about more is the word that defines the pathway to order. That is, how do you get there? And that word is very well known. It's wisdom. So wisdom mm-hmm. is a pathway to order. Mm-hmm. So we hear about order all the time. We hear mm-hmm. about it in Torah. Because we translate that law, and even if we do, and I, I have a thing about that, but okay. even if we do, you know, we're very familiar with law and order. It's a TV show. Right. So, so you know, law and order, Torah even more so, and order go together, because Torah is also not just legislation, it's wisdom, and as wisdom, it's a pathway to order. And so, wow. actually, in the vocabulary, you find it all over the place. It's just, it's all the words that are all around the concept. Wow. All right. So let's move into Adam and Eve. This is another big one. And I know you wrote a book about this as well. I have not read that book full, full transparency. Uh-oh. Uh, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, a lot of people in my circles, including me, have been asking that question. Like, are, are Adam and Eve, as best as we can tell, are they real figures? Are they the first two humans ever to exist? Um, are they just like, uh, you know, um, some kind of narrative device, so to speak? What is your your perspective on Adam and Eve and what they signify um, in the Hebrew scriptures? My perspective is still fairly conservative in that 
in that I accept Adam and Eve as real people in a real past. Okay. But at the same time, I unbundle them from thinking scientifically. That is that they are the first and only of the species. That's a biological question. Here we've got a literary historical question, real mm. people in a real past, and here's narrative about them. Right. Okay, but now here's the scientific stuff, which the text is not dealing with, first and only of the species. Okay. Okay. We get the basic idea that they're not necessarily the first and only of the species when we read all around those early narratives. We find things like the that Cain took a wife, uh, that right. Cain built a city. You know, you can't build a city just for yourself. That's just right. a man cave. Uh, you, you, <laughs> right. you, you know. Um, Cain is sent out and thinks, now everybody's going to kill me. Who's this everybody? <laughs> you know, so right. we get hints. Right. Right. We get hints about it. Um, and so in that sense, um, I'm not inclined to think that they are the first and only of the species. Hmm. Uh, then, of course, you have to ask the question, well, then why are they significant? Why talk about them? Exactly. And, That's my next question. Yeah. And, of course, that ties into the role that they have. Uh, just as I mentioned in chapter one, God is coming to dwell among his people. As chapter two comes into play, we see that being the case. God is dwelling there, hmm. and they're dwelling in his midst, and there's sacred space. Sacred space is just saying God's there. If God's there, it's sacred space. Okay. Okay? So okay. they're in sacred space. And so this is all about God's presence with people and how people are living out their responsibilities. What is their responsibility? Subdue and rule. That's bringing order. As image of God, they are supposed to be working alongside God to bring his order. Hmm. They decided they want to freelance and bring their own order for themselves. That's why they take from the wisdom tree, wisdom pathway to order. Okay, so in okay. that sense, okay, so yeah. this is setting up this whole idea of really what are humans? They're the image of God. Right. Uh, they are in relationship with God. They are in relationship with one another. Human identity. So I tend to call Genesis 1 an account of cosmic identity. What is the cosmos? Instead of an account of cosmic origins. Genesis 2, I tend to call it an account of human identity rather hmm. than an account of human origins. Hmm. Because that's its real purpose to tell us who we are. Adam and Eve, then, are archetypes. That is, they are reflecting something that's true of all of us. Hmm. They're not trying to tell us something that's uniquely true of Adam and Eve. After all, the guy's called human. Right, right. I mean, right. Adam means human. Right. Eve means life. Hmm. Okay, so... Human and life. So wow. human met life. And, you know, I mean, we get the idea that there's something bigger than, who are these two people? Right. Man, I mean, I, I know I keep saying this, but to my audience and to me, this is just so not what we were taught to understand. Now, I'm, I'm not saying it, it was malicious. I'm just saying that, like, for whatever, however reason, we, how, however it happened, I've never heard this put this way. And as you talk about it, it makes way more sense than the narratives I've been told. And it's way easier to reconcile some of even, even like the logical inconsistencies. Like for example, what you said, I always wondered, well, if Adam and Eve were the first two people, how do they have enough people 
to have more people. Like that would be weird. Like that's like what like incestual. Like, it's just bizarre. And mm-hmm. those answers have never or questions that have, have never been really, really been answered well. But when you talk about it like this, like this idea of archetype and that, that there's a good chance that they weren't the only people, but there's something happening here that reflects all humans. That makes things way more like, yeah, okay, that makes more sense and kind of, in my view, more beautiful because it speaks more to like that 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 human existence. It also tends to, in my perspective so far as you're talking, it tends to um, maybe unintentionally push against some of like the, I grew up in a very um, Calvinist, you know, uh, tradition. So for me, this total depravity, you know, all that kind of thing. And it sounds like this idea of the tree of wisdom is different than like how I've been taught to understand it of like, you know, by, by them just, just by them disobeying God, that was the main problem here. Not necessarily what, what that signifies. So can you dive in a little bit more to the idea of wisdom and what, what the tree signifies and maybe even the serpent, if you're, if you're down to go there? Well, again, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. First of all, we've got a problem because we read those words, good and evil as moral categories. Right. And we're thinking, well, what else could they be? <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, they are order categories. Hmm. Tov, good, means it's ordered. Ra, evil, is working against order. Okay, so you've got this idea of order and disorder. Okay. okay? And wisdom is the path to knowing what brings order and what brings disorder. Okay? okay. And that's what wisdom is, because wisdom is a pathway to order. Okay. okay. So that so it's not like so God didn't want them to have wisdom. He wanted them to stay stupid. Right. No. Right. No. Because the fact was he was going to provide them the pathway to his order. Hmm. Okay? They're taking the fruit says we want to freelance. Right. So it's like right. if real estate agents decide they're going to sell houses on the side, even though they're working still in the office of their boss and their, their real estate right. company, right. they say, no, 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 we're not going to sell houses for you. <laughs> we're going to sell houses for us. And mm. yeah, so you know that that kind of idea. And of course, that's why God ends up saying, not in my backyard, you're not. Um, you know, if you okay. want to do water on your own, out you go. Give it a try. Best, right. best wishes with that. But yeah. Uh, just want to tell you. So that right. was a paraphrase. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> so That's so that idea of, you know, that there's, uh, that it's morality at stake. In one right. sense, it's bigger than morality. Morality is a part of order. You know, mm-hmm. moral choices, moral living is part of order, but it's only one part of order. And the question more significantly is, whose order is it? And of course, the path of humanity has always been order for me. Right, of course. You know? that's, I mean, that's that's our nature. Right. And so in that sense, that's... The, and see, the basic problem with that was that, and I didn't mention this earlier, mm. they were, why are they important? They were put in the garden in sacred space with two jobs. Hmm. Chapter 2, verse 15. We usually translate it, keep and, you know, yeah, gardening things, you know, serve and keep. Those are priestly terms. Hmm. And sacred space is served by priests. And the significance of Adam and Eve is their priestly role. They're supposed to be maintaining sacred space. Hmm. Okay? Okay. As, again, the ones who are most 
prominently connected with God's order. But then they kind of take it all for themselves. Huh. You know, they decide to sell the fruit at the neighborhood fruit stand. And no. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Add a markup, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So again, you're just, you're blowing all my categories. I don't really have a lot of shelf space yet for these new terms that you're introducing into these stories for me. You know, even like how you said that it's bigger than morality, that morality is only part of it. So what are these other categories? Because in my, again, just how I was taught, it's all about morality in the sense of right and wrong. Like, like this is moral, this is immoral. That's good, that's bad. What are other categories that we're dealing with here that we just, as maybe as, as Westerners or, or however you want to say it, don't have categories for? Well, newsflash piece of direction. Okay. Read the Torah. You know, when you read the Torah... I'm writing that down. Read yeah, the Torah. When you read the Torah, you can see that there are some moral issues addressed. Yeah. There's a lot more. There's all kinds of things that, that as moderns, we look at and we say, well, that's crazy. What's his tassels on the garment and side curls and, yes. and not eating pork? Oh, really? Are you serious? Or lobster? And, right. and you know, all of this stuff, not to mention all the rituals. Yes. Right? Yes. All of that's order. Hmm. Ritual is connected to order. The way society lives is connected to order. Think about if you ever saw the, the musical or the movie Fiddler on the Roof, mm. okay? The, the title line, tradition, you know, this is, this is how we do things. Right. And here's the, here's the structures of our society that give us order, give us rest, give us shalom, feels right. And it's the mama's role and the papa's role and the son and daughter and rabbi and the tailor and the matchmaker and all of these frame our society and they those traditions give us a sense of identity and worth and you can see that's far more than morality yeah it's politics it's economics it's society in general it's human interpersonal relationships right so right. order is a lot bigger as you're talking, if you see me looking over this way, I have a secondary screen. I'm typing out questions because I don't want to forget them because you're just making my my head is That's like right. smoking, you know. So I'm not ignoring you. I'm just like slow down, professor, you know, kind of thing. It's just so good. You know, you're, you're saying so many good things. Um, I want to get back to this idea of you, you said something that was like, whoa, okay. Let's so let's back up for a second. You mentioned that that it wasn't about God keeping Adam and Eve stupid, right? Like keeping them ignorant almost. So. I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like what you're saying is like God, in a sense, is saying like I want to show you good and bad, like what, what, what is good and what is bad. Because again, I've always been taught that before the fall, we didn't know what sin was. Like you know, and if we never ate of the tree, we would never have known. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is that well, this has kind of always existed, and God is saying, let me show you in my wisdom how to how to separate the two. Am I off there? Again, I would say yes. wisdom is not an independent study. Hmm. You learn wisdom from others. That's why the whole book of Proverbs is set up father and son. This is a taught thing. It's not an independent study. Hmm. And so God is going to teach them wisdom to his order. Hmm. He's going to school them in how they can subdue and rule under his rule and be part of his plans and purposes. Again, the problem is they go off on their own. So this is not about God teaching them about sin. Again, sin, morality, is one slice of it. Right. But we shouldn't think that's the whole pie. Hmm. Um, 
so immediately what I go to is I start thinking, okay, how does this apply to me, right? Because that's how I'm taught. Like I read the Bible to find out what's in God's word to apply to me. And and so I'm just wondering, like, you know, as someone now who's reading this with maybe fresh eyes for the first time, you know, the Bible, I, I do believe it has some inspiration to it. Like the, God is doing something through this book that we have now. How, how, how are we that, out there? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I'm glad. So what, like, what, what would you say is the, um, how do we learn wisdom from this book trying to show us wisdom that's written, like you always say, it's written to us, but not uh, for us, but not to us, I think is what you say. Is that, is that correct? I think, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that, that's right. Yep. So what do we do with that? Because obviously, yes, I'm not an ancient, you know, Eastern Jewish person. I'm not observing the, the laws. So, you know, what does a modern audience do with this, this Torah that is complex and deep and, you know, just hard to understand sometimes? It's hard work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, if you hand somebody, just a regular person in the pew, hand them a Hebrew Bible, they say, oh, I can't read that. Right. And you tell them, well, I get that. With a little help, you can. Hmm. Now, that little help could be by taking a Hebrew course, but that's not generally how it works. Hmm. The little help is a translator is going to come in and tell it to you in English. Right. Okay. So everybody knows they that somebody had to work hard at translation, and then they have to work hard to kind of read that text in a translation to try to get the message. It's no different from than culture in culture. Hmm. That is. Uh, instead of a translator, we talk about a culture broker. Hmm. Okay, a cultural broker is helping people in one culture get a handle on something they really need to know in another culture. Right. And that typically does need someone in a broker situation unless you want to go learn it yourself. Hmm. Again, you can learn Hebrew yourself and become a translator, or you can take the benefits of those who have yes. done that. Yes. And uh, But... In neither case, okay, you can't just pick up a Hebrew text if you've never studied Hebrew and just say, well, I'll just kind of intuitively figure out what it says. You know, right, that right. doesn't happen. Right, right. But yet, without a culture broker, you have some of the same problems, not as bad, but some of the same problems. Oh, I'll just read it by what comes into my mind. Right. And no, that's not always going to turn out well. Hmm. Because when we read intuitively, we find out that that's not reliable. Yes. Because our intuitive reading imposes our culture totally. on the text. Totally. We don't want to impose our culture on the text. We want to get to the question of, well, what does it mean to me? But we can't do that until we figure out what did it mean to them. Right. So what do you think, you know, big picture, high level overview, what do you think it means to us with with that in mind? Genesis or the Old Testament or the Bible or... <laughs> Great question. What level are you talking about? All right, here? good point. Good point. Why don't we? Um, why don't we? Why don't we just do the Old Testament as a whole? Because that to me is way more foreign to me, even than, than the epistles. Right? I'm, I'm more familiar with them, so to speak. But yeah. go ahead. You'd be not surprised at all if you're a reform background to know that it's eventually driving us to Jesus. Yes. But that's certainly not in their minds. They don't know that. What right. they do know is that this is about God's plans and purposes. Hmm. God is telling us his story so that we can become participants, find our place in his story, and partner with him in carrying out his plans and purposes. 
Now, to reveal his plans and purposes, he chooses a nation to work through, a family, a nation, the covenant, okay? So God chooses that particular means, could have done others, I suppose, but that's what he picked. We got to live with it. Right. And so he's, he's revealing his plans and purposes sufficiently so that we can understand uh, some of his nature, maybe just a little bit, you know, God's pretty big. Right. Okay. But some of his nature, enough to trust him and that we can see enough of his plans and purposes, not all of it, but enough that we can participate and say, I'm in, hmm. I'm, I'm with it. Hmm. And that is an alternative to doing our own plans and purposes. Right. You know, it's not like we're in the driver's seat and God is riding in the passenger seat to help us out. Hmm. You know, you didn't pick up Jesus along the side of the road of the hitchhiker to take you to your best life now. Right. You, you know, he's right. driving. Right. <laughs> and right. so that's that's this idea of how God is working out his plans and purposes. And reading the Old Testament, you don't know yet that it gets to Jesus. Right. But you can see that God is working out his plans and purposes. Hmm. We get to know someone by hearing their story. And that's what God's given us in the Old Testament. Hmm. He's given us his story. And if we want to get to know God, that's what we've got. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about, because I know you wrote a book, um, I have it here, called The Lost World of Scripture. And mm-hmm. I just, before I, I started this interview with you, I just finished, um, I'm not sure if you know who Pete Enns is. He has yeah, a, I a do. podcast. Yeah, normal, uh, Bible for normal people. Yeah. Yep. He just had a whole episode on how we got the Bible. It's like a big, high level, like, you know, under like 45 minutes. So he's really doing big picture stuff. He talks a lot about, um, you know, the 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 texts that we have. Obviously, are not the originals. We all, I think, that's pretty commonly known. You know, even the most conservative Dr. James White would say, "Yes, I know that." Right. Um, mm-hmm. um, but he also talked a lot about how he his conclusion was kind of we. And I'm doing my best to summarize someone like him. But essentially, what he says is that we as you know moderners think of the bible in terms of like a modern lens like okay one author wrote this book and and that should be it but the bible isn't really that way at all it's more it's kind of sourced from different even like different versions of the same book he references jeremiah how we have a, we have like different competing versions of that so to speak so you know can you give us like some of your perspective on this stuff as far as what, what i struggle with is i was always taught that you know the bible is infallible it's inspired it, it, you kind of get the impression that it was beamed from heaven above right Obviously, we we know that it, that isn't the case. It's a very historical book. How do you reconcile what you said earlier? What I would say, like like this is what God's given us, while realizing that it's a pretty debated issue, you know, in a lot of ways. As I said, Pete Enns is a friend. I count him as a friend. We've worked together on some things, and uh, there is a lot that he says that I agree with. Okay. But (laughs) (laughs) there are some very significant things that I I disagree with, and I'm not going to go into all of that, but just just so that's out there. Yeah. Um, The the way I talk about it is that I feel like we're, we have, we run the risk of missing the main points if we're not asking the right questions. Okay. So one of the first things I say is that we have to recognize that in the biblical world, there were no books, there were no authors. Okay. Nothing, you know, nothing, anything like a book as we know it, nothing, anything like an author as we know it. Hmm. Um, 
And yet, when we study the Bible, one of the first things we ask is, well, who's the author of this book? Right. Oops. <laughs> Yeah. In most cases, my opinion, in sure. most cases, the writing of what we have as our biblical book is the last step in a long process, not hmm. the first step. Hmm. We really shouldn't talk about, um, well, Ezekiel sat down and he began to write prophecies. Where do you ever see something like that in the Bible? Hmm. The prophets spoke. Right. Okay. Jesus spoke. We don't have a book of Jesus. We right. have four Gospels. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so the we have failed to grasp the importance that it was a hearing-dominant culture. Hmm. That doesn't mean they're illiterate, although they certainly weren't as literate as people today. They had no need to be. You know, I don't have Fair. to be literate in computer code, fortunately, right. because... <laughs> Same. I can operate a computer without that. Great point. They didn't have to be literate to operate in their culture. Okay? Mm -hmm. I get, I, it may be that a basic literacy was fairly common. I don't know. It's a big argument. Yeah, but yeah. it doesn't matter. It was a hearing-dominant culture. And therefore, they tended to operate in an oral world. Oral, oral, yes, both right. ways. Right. Okay? Right. And so... That that makes a difference. That would suggest at least um, the consideration that many of the biblical books circulated orally before any of it was written down. And when some parts were written down, it could have been just been documents, a story of Samson, a story of Abraham, you know, hmm. a, a psalm here, an oracular prophecy over here. Right. Uh, you know, documents, but those documents didn't circulate. Right. Nobody could read them. They were in archives of the scribes. Hmm. Um, and so, to the extent that there were documents at some point, right. they weren't general knowledge or general access, and still things circulated orally. Uh, that changes a lot about what the... Uh, that means that for everybody who sat down and told the story of Abraham, they might tell it a little differently. Right. I don't mean that they're making stuff up. Just anytime you tell a story, you tell it a certain way. Totally. For your audience, you pick the thing, you know, make it a good story. You know, students come over to the house and they say, well, how did you and your wife meet? Yeah, right. There's a dozen different ways to tell that story. <laughs> sure. And they're all true. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, but, but right. if, if the biblical narratives are circulating in that kind of way, you know, then when you finally get to somebody who's putting it into a document, which version are they picking and why? How are they formulating that? So there's a lot more question marks. Right. Um, that even would raise the question, well, what do you mean by the autographs? Right. I mean, is that the oral, but whose oral presentation? Right. Is it a document? But, but what, you know... Again, the document might be in several archives. It might be in a different form. Right. Now, for some people, that's going to give them and say, oh, so then I can't believe the Bible at all. And please understand, I'm not suggesting any such thing. Hmm. I'm just saying we have to think about the process differently. Okay? Inspiration is connected by the biblical text to the graphe, the written word, which I take as that final form that the text 
took on. Hmm. But I don't know, did Genesis take on its final form early or late? How would I know? Right. Right? I don't know who finally grabbed all of those oral traditions and all of those documents right. and compiled them with a purpose right. into the book that I have as Genesis. Right. So I can't put a whole lot of significance on who did that because I don't know and I don't know when they did it. But my, my affirmation of inspiration comes in saying God was responsible for putting that text as it is now in front of me. Hmm. It has its sourcing God. Hmm. But that means that God's involved in a whole process with oral tradition and documentizing and inscripturating and compiling and composing and final form and editing and redacting. And so it's, yeah. it's certainly not a clean theory. Well, that's that's kind of my yes. That's exactly right. It's not a clean theory, and you know, again, I just want to emphasize, like so many people, myself included, were were taught that it was right. And mm -hmm. so, what happens is when when you grow up in this culture, this church culture, from good people, I want to emphasize that they're not bad people, and they tell you that this Bible in your in your hand is the the, the direct word of God. It's infallible. It's inerrant. There's no flaw in it. It's perfect, just as we have. And then when you hit like, you know, your mid twenties, you start digging, you start discovering that, that there's a whole world of academics and scholars who have done hard work. And it turns out it's not nearly that clean. It becomes this process of like, it's very anxiety inducing, frankly, and it makes you really question everything because you're thinking, well, you know, my only, my only category for this being God's word is that it has to be like God, flawless, perfect, infallible. And it turns out that we have, you know, some problems sometimes. And there are some, you know, it's hard to trace the origin. So I think that's why a lot of us struggle with this big time. Well, one of the main reasons for writing that Lost World of Scripture book was we talk quite a bit, especially in the final chapters, about inerrancy. So if we understand the process as we have laid it out, what does that mean for inerrancy? What does inerrancy mean? How how right. important is this or how important isn't it? And, and, you know, what are we getting at with this idea of inerrancy? So if people are struggling with that, that's the book to read uh, that will get them to uh, kind of process all of that. That's good. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes because, again, I, I know we talked before I started recording with you, but I mentioned this term deconstruction. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the term or if you – again, I just don't know like how much of your fingers on the pulse of like this um, explosion, I'm going to say, of people – and I represent – part of them who are committed to Jesus. Like I am, like I'm, I'm obsessed. I have a podcast and Instagram account doing this stuff, but I've also found so much of my evangelical heritage so intensely problematic for, from many different angles, you know, not even just the, the how I was talking about the Bible, but um, you know, just other things as well. So how we handle certain uh, societal issues, how we handle our politics, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's become this, this, this bomb really of, of, or I should say really, really these ingredients. And when you throw these ingredients in, you know, you start thinking about hell and you start thinking about the Bible, you start thinking about this and you bake that cake, you know, you're going to end up with someone who considers himself like either losing their faith, quote unquote, or rethinking their faith. So, I mean, I know I threw a lot at you right there, but like, you know, do you have any like thoughts on that? Have, have, have you seen this? And I know that, that, that you teach, have you seen this thing kind of happen to some of your students and do you have any response to it? 
I'm I'm quite well aware of it. Lots of times it's connected to millennials, but I don't think it's limited to millennials. Agreed. Um, and it's lots of those people who find my books and find out that they can still maintain their faith, yet not kind of go down that that very narrow path of this is how you have to think about it. Yeah. Um, and so I get emails, so many emails, but emails, <laughs> you know, a lot of people who give testimony, you know, my faith was gone or my faith was shaky. And, yeah. and I encountered this book or that book that you wrote and it kind of salvaged my faith. And, you know, and boy, it doesn't take very many of those to make you say, oh, I'm, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, you know? And so I think that people have often found my books to be something that can help them over those humps, because I definitely, definitely come at these issues through a perspective of faith, Yeah, you know, and through uh, the idea that the Bible has authority and that we're accountable to it. Uh, I... I don't have objections to some of those other words we use, but authority is the one that I tend to use. Hmm. And when people say, well, what does it mean that the Bible has authority? Right. And the first thing I say is what it means is that if something has authority, your job, if you're under authority, is to submit to it. And that means you're accountable. Hmm. And so then we talk, start talking about what does accountability to the Bible look like? Right. Well, of course, in the end, it's accountability to God. Right. But it's also, intermediately, accountability to the human instruments he chose. Hmm. God vested his authority in those human instruments that we call authors. And, <laughs> yeah. and so, our first line of accountability is to them. Hmm. And, of course, that takes you back to reading the text carefully, you know, and in culture and language and all of that. Because that's how we express our accountability to God because it's the process he used. Hmm. And so, instead of kind of getting tied up in words like inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration even, they're all important words, but this idea of how do we remain accountable to a text which we consider authoritative, and therefore which we consider true, but of course we have to understand the nature of its truth. Hmm. Okay, because uh, truth can be told Many different ways. That doesn't yeah. mean there are many truths. I'm not a post postmodern, but uh, sure. all truths are right. I don't do that. Okay, okay. but <laughs> but still, you know, like I said, with telling the story of how my wife and I met, right. we can tell the story a dozen different ways, and they're all true. Right. Okay. They don't contradict. So when we talk about the Bible as truth, what are we getting at? Right. And that's what we talk about in Lost World of Scripture as well. That's great. That's super helpful. So just a few more questions here. And again, thank you for your time. I appreciate you having, having you on. Um, I'm not asking you to name names or to blow anyone's spot up as that isn't the point, but do you feel like there are like, okay. In, in my, again, my perspective, I just see some of these more, I'm going to say fundamentalist movements in, in the Christian, you know, American space that just seem to be like very loud and very like, this is the gospel. This is the way to see it. And if you don't, you're like a heretic. I mean, they throw that word heretic around like, like it's a, a volleyball, you know, any like, you know, what, what do people do with that? Because a lot, I think that a lot of us are really pushing against moral uh, 
and a lot of us are pushing against that in the sense of I tell a lot of my followers that I would have more even respect for those types of people if they were willing to admit that, yes, this is one perspective that we hold, and we realize that in the Christian tradition, there's more than one way to view this issue. But so many of them instead have this posture of, we have it, you don't, and we're against this. What do you, I mean, how do we move forward from that? Well, first of all, I think we have to take more seriously the idea that they'll know we are Christians by our love. Hmm. Um, That is, and that certainly means we should treat people outside the Christian faith with love, but how much more that we should treat our own brothers and sisters with love. And Mm. unfortunately, that's not always been characteristic of Christians. Um, And so I think that's that's one of the first things. We have to reinvestigate our attitude and what Christ calls us to. Secondly, as you say, we have to recognize that the tent's probably a little bigger than lots of people think. And uh, that we have to recognize that. I was once in a uh, in a group discussion, you know, in front of people, and there was a person who was young Earth, uh, and I was talking about my role in Genesis. And um, in the in the panel discussion, he said to me, "So, when when I've got so much evidence for my view, how can you say I'm wrong?" And I immediately said, "Where did you hear me say you're wrong?" Hmm. And he was kind of taken aback. But then I made the comment. I said, you know, we both we both have some presuppositions. Right. We both have our methodologies. Right. We both have our ways of prioritizing the data that we have. And that leads you to one set of conclusions and me to another. Hmm. Um, I have adopted my conclusions because, to me, it has the higher probability, given the presuppositions and analyses and data, that the way I prioritize it. Right. You prioritize them differently. Um, so I'm not in a position to say I'm right and you're wrong. Um, you know, mm. who knows? I might change my view in a decade. Right. Maybe right. you'll change yours in a decade, you know? Right. Yeah. And just the idea of changing your viewpoint for some people says, oh, well, then I'm not really a person of faith. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, see, my that's point. the problem. You can be a person of faith and still recognize that I don't have all the answers. Hmm. And, I come to conclusions, but I hold them lightly. Yeah. One of the things I tell my students often is that if you get to the point where you cannot be surprised by the text, you're not in a good place. It's hmm. good. Because it means you think you've got all the answers and you're not open-minded anymore to hear new things. I've got data about the ancient Near East, about Hebrew, that other people don't have. That's not because I'm better. It's just I've had the opportunity, the privilege to study those things. Right. So I can put information on the table that people have not heard before. You said that yourself a couple of times today. Yes. (laughs) That that should always be worth listening to. Yeah. You know, and I'm always willing to listen to it from somebody else, even if I know that I deeply disagree with some of their conclusions. Right. They might still have an insight that can turn things around for me. Hmm. So. I think a, a lot of that attitude, I, I don't know quite know how to fix it because so much of the blogosphere has become, you know, we're going to go take everybody down, you know, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I just have really a lot of trouble with that. Yeah. Um, um, last question. So let's move to the other side of that, of that coin. So I would say people like probably at this point myself, and I came out of that very kind of, I don't know, fundamentalist perspective, 
now tend to find ourselves in more of like a progressive space, I'll say. You know, a little more like progressive Christian. We're kind of rethinking like what it means socially to be a Jesus follower and, you know, the social implications of that. Um, as well as, you know, for me, I would still hold the conservative position as far as, you know, Jesus being bodily resurrected. I wouldn't hold to a more liberal view of that. But a lot of us are in this space, you know, from, from what you can tell and from what you know, what are your thoughts on some of this more like progressive, I'm using that word for sake of a, a lack of a better word, you know, um, Christianity that maybe you've been seeing and what do you think are some good things and maybe some good feedback for us to keep in mind as we move forward? I think, I hope sure. that we're learning more about what we're doing when we seek guidance from the Bible. Hmm. And of course, lots of these issues come down to that. Yeah. Here's the biblical view of this. Here's the biblical view of that. Totally. You know? uh, the biblical view of dating, the biblical view of social media, the biblical view of marriage, the biblical view of leadership, the bi- right? Blah, blah. blah. And, and everybody wants to stamp that ad- adjective biblical. Totally. Because then they say, then I'm right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's the ultimate card. How do you keep the, the Bible? Yeah, me and the Bible. Exactly. So, exactly. And, and I, and what I often tell my students and talk about in books is that we have to be very careful before we use that adjective biblical, hmm. because it better be something that the Bible itself is doing, not just proof texts that we're mining to yeah. support our own inclinations and positions. That's good. Um, you know, the third commandment is not to take the Lord's name in vain. And to me, I understand that is you don't use God to... Um, validate your positions. Right. But that's what we do all the time. Yeah. And so to me, it's a third commandment issue um, (laughs) that we keep trying to make everything biblical. Right. So, but then if you, if you start stripping that away and saying, okay, so I'm not going to talk about, you know, the biblical view of nutrition um, and, you know, well, then what do I have left for guidance? Right. Okay. If I've dropped all of, of that facade, and I would call it a facade, what do I have left to say, and here's how I know I'm right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be so quick. I mean, we have to make decisions. Right. 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 So at some point, you have to say, okay, how do I think about this? Yeah. Um, but it might give us a little more leeway to say, you know, there might be a couple different ways to think about this. And maybe I have to talk to other people who think a different way than I'm inclined to Hmm. and try to think through how they're seeing it. Now, of course, sometimes both sides of whatever issue are both slinging the the biblical view of something. Totally. Okay. At each other. Yep. And that's problematic. That's not how the conversation should take place. Hmm. We want our thinking to be biblically informed, meaning that it's going to be godly in its nature Hmm. But the proof text is not the way. Hmm. Yeah, it's good. not a sound methodology. I agree. So I think we have to start to learn new methodologies for how to think through today's issues, because today's issues were not Israelite issues, right? And therefore, they're not going to be talking about those things, right? And right. just to pull out a verse out of context is not demonstrating a a sound view of theology or God or the Bible. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. 
That's helpful. I, I wrestle with that a lot. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I tend not to say a lot of Bible verses when I'm talking to people. So I'm like, I'm not going to, because anyone can thread the needle with any verses. You know, anyone can do it. We, we've seen it. We've seen extremes in all perspectives argue why they're biblical and someone else isn't. And it's just a bad argument. Just yeah. is. Just a bad one. Well, um, you know, John, I appreciate you making time again and coming on. You're a treasure trove of information. And I want to say, you know, while I have you here, that trust me when I tell you that that the, that the work that you and, and all of you uh, do uh, in, in that world is so needed. So do not stop. I've read your book, It's Changed My Life. You know, um, the podcast world of having access to people like you would just, it's, it's, it is a privilege. You know, like we're, we live in a time in history where people who were not as accessible are so accessible and they're... I think even though the work is slow, I think that that people like you are really changing the um, the Christian landscape of how we approach the Bible, of how we approach our faith. So you're doing great work. So keep it up. Well, thank you. I hope I'm doing it in positive, beneficial, good ways. You notice I didn't say right ways. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you're doing it very biblically. <laughs> Thanks for this coming on. Biblical- Oops. <laughs> okay. Appreciate yeah. your time. Thanks. In America, it's estimated that 4% of people in prison are actually innocent. When I saw them for the very first time, like I knew who my jury would be doing trial. To be honest, I knew I lost them. In 2002, the state of Georgia found Kerry guilty for his alleged involvement in a vicious rape. Only a small percentage of those people have their convictions overturned. You know, as one great justice said uh, many years ago, we don't find our witnesses from church pews. What series of events led to Carrie's wrongful conviction? Could this happen to anyone? What finally convinced the courts to overturn his conviction? From Zapier, in partnership with the Georgia Innocence Project, this is The 4%. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts or visit zapier.com forward slash resources forward slash podcasts to learn more. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that.